1895, Andrew Murray was staying as a guest in a home while traveling for preaching. One morning, he lay in bed because his back, which was injured a few years prior, was causing him severe pain. And when his hostess brought him breakfast, she told him that a troubled woman had come to the house and she was asking for his counsel. Andrew Murray handed her a piece of paper in his pain and said, just give her this advice I'm writing down for myself. It may be that she'll find it helpful. And this is what was written. In time of trouble, say, first, he brought me here. It is by his will I am in this straight place. In that I will rest. Next, he will keep me here in his love and give me grace in this trial to behave as his child. Then say, he will make the trial a blessing, teaching me lessons he intends me to learn and working in me the grace he means to bestow. And last, say, in his good time, he can bring me out again. How and when, he knows. Therefore say, I am here, one, by God's appointment, two, in his keeping, three, under his training, four, for his time. Brothers and sisters, can we not say something similar in these days as we once again are reminded of our frailty and the frailty of our world in this time of pandemic, even as we look with hope to the future. Nevertheless, we are reminded that we are here once again in all of our trials and all of our difficulties by God's appointment in his keeping under his training for his time. I really want to focus on that third word of counsel that Andrew Murray gave to himself and to that woman who had sought counsel from him that day under his training. Reflecting on the missionary life of Hudson Taylor, Dr. and Mrs. Howard Taylor observed that we experience in all of our trials the following. They said, quote, we experience love first, then suffering, then a deeper love. Thus only can God's work be done. So the path to deeper love for God is suffering. It is the school by which God cultivates dependence on himself. John Piper, several years ago, wrote a very helpful article called Five Reasons. I believe it's called something like Five Reasons for Suffering. And he acknowledges in that article that very rarely does God give us the micro reasons for our suffering. In other words, those specific things that he's doing in our individual lives, Job didn't even get that answer. But he does give us in the scriptures many, many macro reasons for suffering. In other words, big picture reasons for suffering. I was watching a webinar this week with a, another pastor, and um, the pastor was asked, is this pandemic a sign of the judgment of God? And he said, broadly speaking, every ill that strikes our world is a sign of the judgment of God. It's a pointer to a greater reality of a greater judgment to come. 
It's a reminder that this earth is under a curse. It's a reminder that things aren't as they were intended to be and will not continue always to be this way. But nevertheless, we must be made right with God. So in, while we rarely know the micro reasons for suffering, we do know larger macro reasons. Let me give you the five that Dr. Piper gives in that particular article. He says, first of all, that God's purposes for sufferings are to serve as a reminder to us. Suffering reminds us that God sent his son into the world to suffer so that our suffering would not be for our condemnation, if we believe in him, but rather for our purification. Secondly, a second macro reason for suffering is reward. 2 Corinthians 4.17 stresses the reality that God sends light and momentary afflictions into our lives to produce for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So suffering for Christians is working for a greater reward in heaven that will make up for every loss here a thousandfold. Number three, suffering is aimed at righteousness, producing righteousness in us. It's the discipline of a loving heavenly father so that we come to share his righteousness and holiness. We see this in Hebrews chapter 12, for instance. Number four, suffering is given for repentance. When Jesus encountered that situation in Luke 13 where that tower had fallen on those people and the people came to him and said, well, what, what caused that to happen? Was it because of someone's sin that that happened? Jesus responded, of those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. So this tragedy was a sign to call us to repentance to turn from treasuring anything on earth above God. And then fifthly and finally, reliance. We read in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, Paul says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So suffering is a call to trust God and not the life-sustaining props of the world. Reminder, reward, righteousness, repentance, and reliance. Those are the macro reasons for suffering. We're in Lamentations these days. We're halfway through. We pick up chapter 4 today, and I want us to focus on the training that God is sending to his people through this affliction, through the Babylonian invasion, through their exile, their captivity, out of the land of Jerusalem. Jeremiah's writing this as a report of all that he's seeing and the devastation that is brought about due to God's judgment on his people and discipline for their sin. We've seen so far in our series in Lamentations, that learning to lament consists of four realities. We're walking through those four realities in these four sermons. We've seen two so far. We're going to see one more today. The first two that we've considered is crying out, crying out for God. Second, complaining to God. We considered that last week. And this morning, I want us to consider calling on God. That is, part of lament is bold asking for God and bold asking of him based upon what he wants us to ask of him for the purposes of the trial that he's sending. So remember, one of the purposes of suffering is to shift our reliance away from the things in this world 
to God himself. And that's what we're going to see this morning. We've sung it a lot this morning. I don't know if you've noticed that, but almost every single song reminds us of suffering and directs us to God. Change and decay and all around I see, O thou who changest not, abide with me. There's a shift in reliance there. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. There's a shift in reliance there. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea. He rides upon the storm. Deep in his dark and hidden minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. You know where that hymn came from? That hymn was written by William Cooper and John Newton. William Cooper, as many of you know, struggled with great depression his entire life. And one of the ways that John Newton, his pastor, ministered to him was to write a a collection of hymns together. They wrote hundreds of them. And John was doing that in part to help recalibrate uh, Cooper's mind. And God Moves in a Mysterious Way was one of those hymns. Those hymns are called the only hymns. You can read all of them online if you want to. But many of those hymns capture this idea of shifting our reliance away from our circumstances, away from our trials, away from our sufferings, onto God himself. And that's exactly what we're going to see in Lamentations 4. We're going to see three bold things we should ask in the midst of our suffering. Three bold requests of God that we should make in the midst of our suffering. And none of them have to do with the change of our circumstances. Because changing our circumstances is way down on God's priority list. How often do we request that the very first thing that comes out of our mouth, that we we experience suffering, the first thing we begin to pray for is a change in circumstances. Brothers and sisters, that's not the first thing we should be praying. We should be praying, teach me what you desire to teach me, God, from sending this change in circumstances. And this change in circumstances that impacted the people of Israel in Jerusalem during this time is reorienting their sources of reliance and calling them back to God in a way that they previously were not depending on him. So let's get into these three bold requests now. Here's the first one. God, be my security, not things. God, be my security, not things. See, Jeremiah surveys the war zone that is Jerusalem, and there's nothing left. God has degraded their culture. The glory of Israel has completely faded. What were they like, and what have they become? Notice verses 1 and 2. How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold. How they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of of a potter's hands. He says all that was glorious in our city has become common. The city is no longer gleaming as a beacon of light to the world, God's holy city. The people who were once the gold standard are now the object of divine disfavor. They have moved from fine china to Tupperware. Their stock has tanked. Look at verse 3. Even jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel like the ostriches in the wilderness. He says there's, there's, a, there's a cruelty that's coming to our, to our culture. We're no longer neighborly. Even these wild animals that are vicious, 
at least feed their young, but can't be said for the people who are in our culture now. Our people are behaving beastly. They're no longer neighborly. They're cruel. Look at verses 4 and 5. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. See, they move from plenty and abundance to need, such that the children are thirsty, they're begging, and no one gives to them. Perhaps because of the cruelty mentioned in the previous verse, but also because they don't have anything to give them anyway. Even if they were to ask for something, they don't have anything to share. Notice the way it says, they once feasted on delicacies. That's another way of saying how the gold has grown dim, verse 4, right? Or verse 1. They were feasting on delicacies, but now they perish in the streets. They were once brought up in purple. Those are the garments of royalty, but they embrace ash heaps now. Look at verse 7 and 8. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral, and beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They're not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It's become as dry as wood. So they've moved from beauty to hideous ugliness. So think about that. There's been an entire shift in this culture, in this city, from glorious to common, from neighborly to cruel, from plenty to want, from beauty to ugly. And the process of losing these things has been slow and painful rather than immediate and sudden. It's one thing to have everything jerked away from you real fast. (laughs) It's another thing to have it slowly taken away. And this is what's been their experience. Look at verse 6. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom. How can that be? Because the punishment of Sodom was sudden. This happened over time. Slow, prolonged suffering is way worse than immediate, vicious suffering, which was overthrown in a moment and no hands were wrung for her. Then verse 9, happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away pierced but lacked the fruits of the field. It says, better to die by the edge of the sword than the way we've perished. Because at least with the sword, it's quick and it's over. But here has been slow and painful. It's been a creeping decay that's felt worse than immediate disaster. And the desperation was ultimate and the punishment was thorough. Look at verse 10. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They've become their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. That, that, you can hardly read that verse. Verse 11, the Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundation. You know situations are desperate when compassionate women boil their children. I mean, what a verse to read on Mother's Day. But it's as a result of their sin and the Lord's wrath against their sin. So the point is that everything that once gave them security is gone. It's all gone. No more city. No more love. No more prosperity. No more beauty. These are the things that most of us live for, right? A nice home, a loving family, 
lots of money and attractive looks. I mean, if we have that, that's like what everything is being marketed to us every single day is to preserve those sorts of things. We think that if we have a place to live, people who love us, money in the bank, and we look good, we've got all we need. But suffering has a way of coming and stripping that all away. Brothers and sisters, I have a sneaking suspicion that our culture is crumbling as well. Now, I'm not a doomsday guy. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. It's just the way of history. The things in which we once found security are rapidly shifting under our feet. The pandemic has shown us how fragile we are. We often look to money for security, but in times like this, we realize it's no place that we can put our hope. So we stop looking at our retirement accounts or we shift our focus elsewhere. Paul warns us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And through this craving, many have forfeited contentment and forgotten what God has said. Intimacy with God loses its value as we fall deeper in love with our currency and all that it can buy for us. If we keep flirting with the security of the things of this life that money can buy for us, we will make ourselves sons of Judas who traded God himself for 30 pieces of silver in Matthew 26, 15. But even before he died, Judas knew he had been had. He grossly overestimated money and misguided the love that no amount of money or silver could ever buy. Brothers and sisters, gold and silver and security can never buy the statement, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Could he not see, could Judas not see how murderously unhappy the Pharisees were? And how were the Pharisees described in Luke 16, 14? Lovers of money. So what does contentment sound like? Well, it sounds like this. It sounds like Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? See the shift? There's the shift of reliance. God be my security, not things. God said, never will I leave you. Money can't say that. The things of this life can't say that. But God can say that, and therefore the Lord is our helper. So how much you have, no matter how much you have, no matter what we have, we need to set our minds on what he has said. If the true God is our God, then he goes with us. He knows all that we need, and knowing all that we need and all you will face, he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. Therefore, we can be courageous wherever his hand leads us, flee the shiny promises of silver, and rejoice in all that God gives. Most of all, we can rejoice that when we don't have everything we want or even everything we need, we have him. And therefore, we have all we really want and all we could ever really need. So that's the first point. And that's what God is sending. He's, he's desecrated this culture to make them hope in God, not in all that their culture brought them, not in the glory that the, their culture brought them and the wealth that their culture brought them and the prestige and beauty that their culture brought them, but rather in the God who was their king. Number two, Here's the second bold request that suffering should lead us to ask. God, be my Savior, not people. God, be my Savior, not people. 
See, when a crisis hits, we start looking to leadership. We've seen that these days, right? Through this crisis. Who, what leader can we blame? We've got to blame somebody. Somebody's doing something wrong. Somebody's not making the right calls. Somebody needs to be thinking differently here. Somebody needs to be not leading well. They're leading well. They're not leading well enough. They're not doing a good job. They're doing a good job. We can come to rely too much on what people can do to fix our situations. In our flesh, we are enamored with fame and power. I mean, do celebrities talking to you about social distancing give you any comfort whatsoever? Why is that more powerful in our culture? Oh, an actress said it. I better do it. Oh, a talented musician just told me, oh, I better listen. Oh, the president said. Oh, this person in political office said, or whatever, just whatever. And that's not to say that those people don't have things to say or shouldn't be offered um, their rights but to, to an opinion, but we can be enamored with fame and power and can quickly pin our hopes on people. We feel better when our people are in control, whether those people be in the political world or the business world or the religious world. And what has happened to those in whom the people trusted here in Lamentations 4? Well, God's discredited all their spiritual leaders. Notice that at all three levels of leadership, leadership has gone down in flames. Look at verse 12. The kings of the earth. Here's political leadership. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. (laughs) Ain't nobody going to attack us. We got a strong military. We're going to be fine. Verse 13, this was for the sins of her prophets, their spiritual leadership, and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. So we see here the kings of the earth, the inhabitants, and the prophets and priests. At all levels of leadership, there has been breakdown. The most exalted among the people have come to be treated like the most unclean. Look at verse 14. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitive and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. And this resulted in them becoming reviled and mocked and scorned instead of honored, revered, and esteemed. Look at verse 16. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests. No favor to the elders. So this lament reminds us of the limitations of human power and leadership. God be my savior, not people. Man-made government, economic theories, and the strong arm of national defense can all become limp, lame, and frail. This is why God says it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9. Brothers and sisters, let's be fearful of putting too much hope in human leaders. Our deliverer does not occupy a seat on the Supreme Court. Now, these issues are important, but they are not ultimate. 
Our deliverer does not dwell in the halls of Congress. Our deliverer does not sign orders in the Oval Office on 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, no matter who's there. Nor does our deliverer sit on a board of a Fortune 500 company or stand behind a pulpit in a church. And this is not only true at the corporate level, it's also true at the personal one. A good friend, as best as they come, cannot mend your broken heart. If you try to deify anyone and look to them to fill what only God can give you, you will give them a burden they're not called to bear and it will drive the best of friends away. You can't look to children and grandchildren to give your life meaning. You can't look for a spouse to provide you ultimate fulfillment. You can't look to a pastor to cure the hurts of your soul. You can't look to the police to protect you. You can't look to a boss to secure your livelihood. You can't look to a four-star general to bring you peace. Now, am I saying that we should just be pacifists and not care about any of that? Should we be so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good? Of course not. I'm talking about ultimate hope here. I'm talking about realistic hope. The Bible is full of this, brothers and sisters, and we need to hear what God says to us. Listen to these verses that remind us that God is to be our Savior and not people. Isaiah 31, 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Jeremiah 17, 5 and 6. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Psalm 40, verse 4. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. Isaiah 2, 22. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Psalm 146, verse 3, Put not your trust in princes, in, the son, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. Psalm 20, verse 7, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. See, everyone needs to be saved, brothers and sisters. And every one of us is trusting in some Savior or other. Does your Savior exist? That's the question. What do you really have going for you? Will anything about your Savior last? Does anything about your Savior deserve to last? If you define yourself by idols, if we define ourselves by trusting in people or things, they'll make us as artificial as they are because we become like what we trust in. But there is a real Savior. He has no standing in the eyes of the present age. He would not be put in any position of power were he walking among us. He wasn't when he was. And this is what he offers, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. See, no one has ever come to him and not been given rest. In a letter to a friend, C.S. Lewis stated with his usual clarity what we all need to understand. Here's what he said. 
I think one may be quite rid of the old haunting suspicion which raises its head in every temptation that there is something else than God, some other country into which he forbids us to trespass, some kind of delight which he doesn't appreciate or just chooses to forbid, but would be real delight if only we were allowed to get it. The thing just isn't there. Whatever we desire is either what God is trying to give us as quickly as he can or else a false picture of what he's trying to give us. He knows what we want, even in our vilest acts. He's longing to give it to us. The truth is that evil is not a real thing at all, like God. It is simply good spoiled. Which is why I say there can be good without evil, but no evil without good. You know what the biologists mean by a parasite, an animal that lives on another animal. Evil is a parasite. It is there only because good is there for it to spoil and confuse. This is why we must be prepared to find God implacably and immovably forbidding what may seem to us very small and trivial things. But he knows whether they are small and trivial, how small some of the things that doctors forbid would seem to someone who was ignorant. See, God has real remedies for our real needs. And at the very point where we stand the most weary, he wants to bear our burden with his strong and mighty hand. So won't you let him? Won't you let him? It really is the next step into a whole new life and a whole new world. So we've seen so far that God is calling us to be, for him to be our security, not things, and for God to be our savior, not people. And thirdly and finally, I want us to see that the third bold request we ask is not just for God to be our security and not things and God to be our savior and not people, but God be my sufficiency, not self. God be my sufficiency, not self. Notice the description of what has happened. Pastor Keith read it for us earlier. As the Babylonians were coming to invade, they ambushed and completely overtook Jerusalem. We see this in verse 17. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. and our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps, that is the Babylonians, so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered, for our end had come. Verse 19, our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. And then in verse 20, we see a vivid picture of what happened to their king. Look at verse 20. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. See, that, that was where their trust was. We've got a good king. We've got a strong king. And the king is gone. Now, I want you to hold your finger here. We're going to come right back to Lamentations 4. But turn back one book to Jeremiah and look at chapter 39. I want you to see what happened to King Zedekiah through this, through this, um, through this raid, this Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah 39, beginning in the first verse. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. This is the chapter that's describing what Lamentations is lamenting. 
chapter, verse 2, In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, a breach was made in the city. Then all the officials of the king of Babylon came and sat in the middle gate. Nergal Sarezer of Samgar, Nebu Sarsakim, the Rob Saris, Nergal Sarezer, the Rob Mog, with all the rest of the officers of the king of Babylon. Verse 4, When Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, they fled, going out of the city at night by way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls, and they went toward the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And when they had taken him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah, in the land of Hamath. And he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah at Riblah before his eyes, and the king of Babylon slaughtered all the nobles of Judah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. The Chaldeans burned the king's house and the house of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Then, then Neb, Nebzaradon, the captain of the guard, carried into exile to Babylon the rest of the people who were left in the city, those who had, been desert, who had deserted to him and the people who remained. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left in the land of Judah some of the poor people who owned nothing and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. So there we see the commentary, that's, that's the event, that's the narrative. But the commentary of verse 20 of chapter 4 in the background makes it all the more vivid. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits. His eyes were gouged out and he was taken away. It's a vivid, vivid picture of what happened to the king. So is there any hope? <laughs> is there any hope at all? I mean, this chapter is so full of Sadness and darkness. Yes, there is hope. The last two verses give it to us. <laughs> right on the heels <laughs> of reporting about what's happened to their king, Jeremiah says, verse 21, Rejoice and be glad. What? Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz, but to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sin. So there's this tension. You're being punished, but I'm going to deliver you. What is all this? What's, what's, what's God saying here? Well, Jeremiah promised that God will not prolong the people's time in exile any longer than necessary. God has purposes in all of this, and he's calling them back to him. That's what he's doing. He's saying to them, come back to me as your sufficiency. Stop trusting and looking to yourself and come back to me as your sufficiency. Let me close by reminding us of Isaiah 46, where Isaiah records, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he. And to your gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and I will save. Brothers and sisters, that God is the same God here of Lamentations 4. They don't perceive it that way. They would feel like, what? 
You haven't carried us from our birth. You aren't still with us. You haven't made us. You're not bearing us. You're not carrying us. You're not saving us. Yes, God is. God's saving them from their idols. He's saving them from their false sources of trust. He's saving them from trusting in themselves, from trusting in people, and from trusting in their culture, their things. See, that's what God is doing in Lamentations and really the the whole story of the exile here. Brothers and sisters, I know in our suffering it can be hard to believe this, but I want to remind you that there is not one moment when God is not carrying you and me along. There will never come a time when we'll have to help poor old doddering God along in his later years. The reality is he's taken us on as his responsibility all the days of our lives. God has taken me on his, as his responsibility for the rest of my life and even before I was born. And if you're his child, he's taken that responsibility on himself for you too. From even before you were born, you were his responsibility. From even your darkest days here on earth, he's still, you're still his responsibility. He's still carrying you. He still made you. He's still bearing you. He will still save you. So you need to humble yourself and realize that God is bearing you up moment by moment by his grace alone. To God, you will always be a child. I'll always be a child. I'll always be dependent. And you know what? That's okay with him. Believe his promise that he'll bring you all the way home and enjoy the ride along the way with all its disappointments and frustrations and fears and anxieties and worries and trials and difficulties. Enjoy the ride. Say, how can we do that? Psalm 55, 22. Cast your burden on the Lord. He will sustain you. Psalm 68, 19. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. See, this is our God. And he wants to prove it by bearing your burden today and every day. Will you let him? Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for strong medicine that you sometimes give us in your word. Medicine that is difficult to take, that smells rough, that tastes bad, but we know will do our souls immeasurable good. Lord, we thank you for difficult passages in your word, for sad passages, because they remind us where our ultimate hope lies. It's not in things. It's not in people. It's not even in ourselves. It's in Christ and in Christ alone. So lead us this morning, God, to hope exclusively in Christ. All of us who are carrying burdens, may at the conclusion of this service, may we go immediately to the burden-bearing Savior that we have, who stands ready, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. May we not refuse his offer ever. In Jesus' name, amen.